Chapter One of the Pirate Island: A Story of the South Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pirate Island: A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collingwood. Chapter One: The Wreck on the Gunfleet. It was emphatically a dirty night. The barometer had been slowly but persistently falling during the two previous days. The dawn had been red and threatening, with a strong breeze from southeast, and as the short dreary November day waxed and waned, this strong breeze had steadily increased in strength, until by nightfall it had become a regular November gale, with frequent squalls of arrowy rain and sleet, which, impelled by the furious gusts, smote and stung like hail, and cleared the streets almost as effectually as a volley of musketry would have done. It was not fit for a dog to be out of doors, so said Ned Anger as he entered the snug bar parlor of the anchor at Brightlingsea, and drawing a chair close up to the blazing fire of wreckwood which roared up the ample chimney, flung himself heavily down thereon to await the arrival of the pint which he had ordered as he passed the bar. And yet there's a many poor souls as has to be out in it, and as is out in it, returned the buxom hostess entering at the moment with the aforesaid pint upon a small tray. It's to be hoped as none of em won't meet their deaths out there among the sands this fearful night, she added, as Ned took the glass from her, and deposited his tuppence in the tray in payment therefore. A sympathetic murmur of concurrence went round the room in response to this philanthropic wish, accompanied in some instances by doubtful shakes of the head. Aye, aye, we all hope that, remarked Dick Bird. Dicky Bird was the name which had been playfully bestowed upon him by his chums, and by which he was generally known. We all hopes that, but I, for one, feels uncommon duberous about it. There's hardly a capful of wind as blows, but what some poor unfortunate craft leaves her bones out there, with a jerk of the thumb over his shoulder to seaward. And mostly with every wreck there's some lives lost. I say, mates, I suppose there's somebody on the lookout— "'Aye, aye,' responded old Bill Maskell, from his favorite corner under the tall, old-fashioned clock-case. "'Bob's gone across the creek and up to the tower as usual. The boy will go. Always says as how it's his duty to go up there and keep a lookout in bad weather. So as his eyes is as sharp as needles, and since one is as good as a hundred for that sort of work, I thought I'd just look in here for an hour or two, so's to be on the spot, if in case any of us should be wanted.' I've often wondered how it is that it always falls to Bob's lot to go upon the lookout in bad weather. How is it? asked an individual in semi-nautical costume at the far end of the room, whose bearing and manner conveyed the impression that he regarded himself, as indeed he was, somewhat of an intruder. He was a ship-chandler shopman with an ambition to be mistaken for a genuine salt and had not been many months in the place. Well, you see, mister... The way of it is just this, explained old Maskell, who considered the question as addressed more especially to him. Bob was took off a rack in the Maplin when he was a mere babby, the only one saved. Found him wrapped up warm and snug in one of the bunks on the weather side of the cabin with the water surging up to within three inches of him. So ever since he's been old enough to understand, he've always insisted as it was his duty, by way of returning thanks like, to take the lookout when a rack may be expected. And don't you make no mistake, there ain't an eye so sharp as his for a signal rocket in the whole place, 
sees them almost afore they be fired, he do. And did you ever try to find his relatives? asked the shopman. Well, no, I can't say as we did exactly, answered old Bill. Cause you see, we didn't rightly know how to set to work at the job. The ship as he was took off of was a passenger ship, the Lightning of London, and as I have said afore, he was the only one saved. There were nobody else as we could ax any questions of, and, the ship hailing from London, there was no telling where his friends might have come from. There was R.L. marked on his little clothes, and that was all. So we was obliged to content ourselves with having that fact tacked on to the yarn of the rack in all the papers, in the hope that some of his friends or relations might get to see it. But, bless your heart, we ain't heard nothing from nobody about him, never a word. So I just adopted him, as the saying is, and called him Robert Ledgerton, arter an old shipmate of mine that's been drowned this many a year, poor chap. And how long is it since the wreck happened? inquired the shopman. Well, let me see, said old Bill. Blessed if I can rightly tell, he continued, after a moment or two of reflection. I've got it wrote down in the family Bible at home, but I can't just rightly recollect at this moment. It's somewheres about fourteen or fifteen years ago this winter, though. Fourteen year next month, spoke up another of the company, decidedly. It was the same gale as my poor brother Joe was drowned in. Right you are, Tom, returned Bill. I remember it was that same gale now, and that's fourteen year agone. And the women as took charge of poor little Bob when we brought him ashore reckoned as he was about two year old or thereaway. They told his age by his teeth. Same as you would tell a horse's age, you know, mister. Ay, that was a terrible winter for Rex, that was, remarked Jack Willis, a fine, stalwart young fellow of some five and twenty. It was my first year at sea. I'd been bound apprentice to the skipper of a collier brig called the Nancy, sailing out of Harwich. The skipper's name was Daniel. Long Tom Dennell, they used to call him, because of his size. He was so tall that he couldn't stand upright in his cabin and he'd been going to sea for so many years that he'd got to be regular round-shouldered. I don't believe that man ever knowed what it was to be ill in his life. He used to be awful proud of his good health, poor chap. He's dead now. Drowned. Jumped overboard in a gale of wind after a man as fell off the foretopsail yard while they was reefing. And, good swimmer as he was, they was both lost. Now, he was a swimmer, if you like. You talk about young Bob being a good swimmer, but I'm blessed if I think he could hold a candle to this here Long Tom Dan'l as I'm talking about. Why, I recollect once when we was lying windbound in Yarmouth Roads. At this point the narrator was interrupted by the sudden opening of the door and the hurried entry of a tall and somewhat slender fair-haired lad clad in oilskin jumper, leggings, and sou'wester hat, which glistened in the gaslight, while, as he stood in the doorway for a moment, Dazzled by the abrupt transition from darkness to light, the water trickled off him and speedily formed a little pool at his feet on the well-sanded floor. This newcomer was Bob Ledgerton, the hero of my story. "'Well, Bob, what's the news?' was the general exclamation, as the assembled party rose with one accord to their feet. "'Rockets going up from the middle in the gun fleet,' panted the lad, as he wiped the moisture from his eyes with the back of his hand." All right, responded old Bill, then drawing himself up to his full height, and casting a scrutinizing glance round the room, he exclaimed, Now, mates, how many of yours ready to go out? Why, all of us, in course, dad, replied Jack Willis. Twas mostly in expectation of being wanted that we come down here tonight. 
and we've all got our oilskins, so you've only got to pick your crew and let's be off. A general murmur of assent followed this speech, and the men forthwith ranged themselves along the sides of the room so as to give Bill a clear view of each individual and facilitate a rapid choice. Then I'll take you, Jack, and you, Dick, and you, and you, and you, quickly selecting a strong crew of the stoutest and most resolute men in the party. The chosen ones lost no time in donning their oilskin garments, a task in which they were cheerfully assisted by the others, and while they were so engaged, the hostess issued from the bar with tumblers of smoking hot grog, one of which she handed to each of the adventurers, saying, "'There, boys, drink that off before you go out into the cold and the wet. It'll do none of you any harm, I'm sure, on a night like this, and on such an errand as yours. And you, Bill, if you save anybody and decide to bring them into Brightlingsea, send up a signal rocket as soon as you think we can see it over the land, and I'll have hot water and blankets all ready for the poor souls against they come ashore.' "'Aye, aye, mother, I will,' replied old Bill. "'Only hope we may be lucky enough to get out to him in time. "'The wind's dead in our teeth all the way. "'Now, lads, if you're all ready, let's be off. "'Thank ye, mother, for the grog.' "'The men filed out, Bill leading, "'and took their way down to the beach, "'a very few yards distant, "'the dim flickering light of a lantern being exhibited "'from the water's side for a moment "'as they issued into the open air.' "'There's Bob waiting with the boat. "'What a chap he is!' ejaculated one of the men, as the light was seen. "'I say, Bill, you won't take Bob, will you, on an errand like this here?' "'Oh, aye,' responded Bill. "'He'll want to go, and I promised him he should next time as we was called out. "'He's a fine, handy lad, and old enough to take care of himself by this time. "'Besides, it's time he began to take his share of the rough work.' Reaching the water's edge, they found Bob standing there with the painter of a boat in his hand, the boat itself being partially grounded on the beach. They quickly tumbled in over the gunwale. Bob then placed his shoulder against the stem head, and with a powerful shove, drove the boat stern foremost into the stream, springing in over the bows and stowing himself away in the eyes of the boat as she floated. It appeared intensely dark outside when the members of the expedition first issued from the hospitable portal of the anchor, but there was a moon, although she was completely hidden by the dense canopy of fast-flying clouds which overspread the heavens, and the faint light which struggled through this thick veil of vapor soon revealed a small fleet of fishing smacks at anchor in the middle of the creek. Toward one of these craft the boat was headed, and in a very few minutes the party were scrambling over the low bulwarks of the seamew. Bill Maskell's property, and the pride of the port. The boat was at once dragged in on deck and secured, and then, without hurry or confusion of any kind, but in an incredibly short time, the smack was unmoored and got under way, a faint cheer from the shore following her as she wound her way down the creek between the other craft and, hauling close to the wind, headed toward the open sea. In a very few minutes the gallant little seamew had passed clear of the low point upon which stands the Martello Tower, which had been Bob's place of lookout, and then she felt the full fury of the gale and the full strength of the raging sea. Even under the mere shred of sail, a balance-reefed mainsail and storm-jib, which she dared to show, the little vessel was buried to her gunwale, while the sea poured in a continuous cataract over her bows, across her deck, and out again to leeward, rendering it necessary for the crew to crouch low on the deck to windward under the partial shelter of her low bulwarks and to lash themselves there it was indeed a terrible night 
the thermometer registered only a degree or two above freezing point, and the howling blast, loaded with spindrift and scudwater, seemed to pierce the adventurers to their very marrow, while, notwithstanding the care with which they were wrapped up, the continuous pouring of the sea over them soon wet them to the skin. But the serious discomfort to which they had voluntarily exposed themselves, so far from damping their ardor, only increased it. As the veteran Bill, standing there at the tiller, exposed to the full fury of the tempest, with the tiller ropes pulling and jerking at his hands until they threatened to cut to the bone, felt his wet clothing clinging to his skin, and his sea-boots gradually filling with water, he pictured to himself a group of poor, terror-stricken wretches clinging despairingly to the shattered wreck out there upon the cruel sands, with the merciless sea tugging at them fiercely, and the wind chilling the blood within their veins until, perchance, their benumbed limbs growing powerless, their hold would relax, and they would be swept away. And as the dismal scene rose before his mental vision, he tautened up the tiller ropes a trifle, the smack's head fell off perhaps half a point, and the wind striking more fully upon the straining canvas, she went surging out to seaward like a startled steed, her hull half buried in a whirling chaos of flying foam. Old Bill, the leader of this desperate expedition, was a fisherman in winter and a yachtsman in summer, as indeed were most of the crew of the Seamew on this eventful night. Many a hard-fought match had Bill sailed in, and more than one flying fifty had he proudly steered, a winner past the flagship, but his companions agreed, as they crouched shivering under the bulwarks, that he never handled a craft better or more boldly than he did the seamew on that night. One good stretch to the eastward, until the middle light bore well upon their weather quarter, and the helm was put down. The smack tacked handsomely. Though she shipped a sea and filled her deck to the gunwale in the operation, and then away she rushed on the other tack, with the light bearing well upon the lee bow. In less than an hour from the time of starting, the light ship was reached, and as the smack, luffing into the wind, shaved close under the vessel's stern with all her canvas a-shiver, Bill's stentorian voice pealed out, "'Middle, ahoy! Where away's the rack?' "'About a mile and a half to the nord, on the weather side of the gunfleet. Fancy she must have broke up. Can't make her out now.' "'Wish you good luck,' was the reply. "'Thank ye,' roared back Bill." Ease up main and jib sheets, boys, and stand clear for a jibe. Round swept the little seamew, and in another moment, with the wind on her starboard quarter, she was darting almost with the speed of her namesake along the weather edge of the shoal, upon her errand of mercy. All eyes were now keenly directed ahead and on the lee bow, anxiously watching for some indication of the whereabouts of the wreck, and in a few minutes the welcome cry was simultaneously raised by three or four of the watchers. There she is. Aye, there she is, sure enough, responded old Bill, from his post at the tiller. He, having, like the rest, caught a momentary glimpse under the foot of the mainsail of a shapeless object, which had revealed itself for a single instant in the midst of the whirl of boiling breakers, only to be lost sight of again as the leaping waves hurled themselves once more furiously down upon their helpless prey. As the smack rapidly approached the scene of the disaster, the wreck was made out to be that of a large ship, with only the stump of her mainmast standing. She was already fast settling down in the sand, the forepart of the hull being completely submerged, while the sea swept incessantly over the stern, which, with its full poop, formed the sole refuge of the hapless crew. "'Now, boys,' remarked old Bill, when they had approached closely enough to perceive the desperate situation of those on the wreck. "'Now, boys,' 
Whatever we're going to do has got to be done smart. The tide's rising fast, and in another hour there won't be enough of yon ship left to light a fire with. Are you all ready with the anchor? Aye, aye, all ready, was the prompt response. The helm was put down, and the smack plunged round head to wind, her sails flapping furiously as the wind was spilled out of them. There was no need for orders. The men all knew exactly what to do, and did it precisely at the right moment. Jib and mainsail were hauled down and secured in less time than it takes to describe it, and then, as the little vessel lost her way, the heavy anchor, carried expressly for occasions like the present, was let go, and the cable veered cautiously out so that the full strain might not be brought to bear upon it too suddenly. Old Bill, meanwhile, stood aft by the taffrail with the lead line in his hand, anxiously noting the shoaling water as the smack drifted sternward toward the wreck. "'Hold on forward!' he shouted at last, when the little seamew had driven so far in upon the sand that there was little more than a foot of water beneath her keel when she sank into the trough of the sea. "'Now lay aft here, all hands, and let's see if we can get a rope aboard of them.' The smack was now fairly among the breakers, which came thundering down upon the shoal with indescribable fury, boiling and foaming and tumbling round the little vessel in a perfect chaos of confusion, and falling on board her in such vast volumes that had everything not been securely battened down beforehand, she must inevitably have been swamped in a few minutes. As for her crew, every man of them worked with the end of a line firmly lashed round his waist, so that in the extremely likely event of his being washed overboard, his comrades might have the means of hauling him on board again. Nor were these the only dangers to which the adventurers were exposed. There was the possibility that the cable, stout as it was, might part at any moment, and in such a case their fate would be sealed, for nothing could then prevent the smack from being dashed to pieces on the sands. Yet all these dangers were cheerfully faced by these men from a pure desire to serve their fellow creatures, and without the slightest hope of reward, for they knew at the very outset that there would not be much hope of salvage with a vessel on the sands in such a terrible gale. The wreck was now directly astern of the smack, and only about one hundred feet distant, so that she could be distinctly seen, as it fortunately happened, that the sky had been steadily clearing for the last quarter of an hour, allowing the moon to peep out unobscured now and then through an occasional break in the clouds. By the increasing light, the smack's crew were not only enabled to note the exact position of the wreck, but they could also see that a considerable number of people were clustered upon the poop of the half-submerged hull, some of them being women and children. The poor souls were all watching, with the most intense anxiety, the movements of those on board the smack, and if anything had been needed to stimulate the exertions of her crew, it would have been abundantly found in the sight of those poor helpless mothers and their little ones, clinging there to the shattered wreck in the bitter winter midnight, exposed to the full fury of the pitiless storm. A light heaving line was quickly cleared away, and one end bent to a rope becket securely spliced to a small keg, which was then thrown overboard and allowed to drift down toward the wreck, the line being veered freely away at the same time. The crew of the wreck, anxiously watching the motions of those on board the smack, at once comprehended the object of this maneuver, and as the keg drifted down toward them, made ready to secure it. But the set of the tide, the wash of the sea, or some other unexplained circumstance, caused it to deviate so far from its intended course that it passed at a considerable distance astern of the wreck, notwithstanding the utmost endeavors of those on board to secure it, in consequence of which it had to be hauled on board the smack again, and thus valuable time was lost. The smack's helm was at once shifted, 
and the tide, aided by the wind, gave her so strong a shear in the required direction that it was hoped a repetition of the mischance would be impossible. The keg was again thrown overboard. The line once more veered away. Buoyantly it drifted down toward the wreck, now buried in the hissing foam crest of a mighty breaker, and anon riding lightly in the liquid valley behind it. All eyes were intently fixed upon it, impatiently watching its slow and somewhat erratic movements. When the smack seemed to leap suddenly skyward, rearing up like a startled courser, and heeling violently over on her beam's end at the same moment, there was a terrific thud forward, accompanied by a violent crashing sound, and the seamew's crew had barely time to grasp the cleat or belaying pin nearest at hand when a foaming deluge of water hissed and swirled past and over them. The breaker of which it formed a part, sweeping from under the smack down toward the wreck in an unbroken wall of green water, capped with a white and ominously curling crest. The roller broke just as it reached the wreck, expending its full force upon her already shattered hull. The black mass was seen to heel almost completely over in the midst of the wildly tossing foam. There was a dull report, almost like that of a gun, a piercing shriek, which rose clearly above the howling of the gale and the babble of the maddened waters. And when the wreck again became visible, it was seen that she had broken in two amidships, the bow lying bottom upward some sixty feet farther in upon the sand, while the stern, which retained its former position, had been robbed of nearly half its living freight. And to make matters worse, the floating keg had once more missed its mark. This repeated failure was disheartening. The tide was rising rapidly. Every minute was worth a human life, and it began to look as though, in spite of all effort, the poor souls clinging to the wreck would be swept into eternity before the seamew's crew could effect a communication with them. "'Let's have one more try, boys,' exhorted old Bill. "'And if we misses her this time, we shall have to shift our ground and trust to our own anchor and chain to hold us until we can get em off.' Risky work that would be, as each man there told himself but none thought of expressing such a sentiment aloud, preferring to take the risk rather than abandon those poor souls to their fate. The line and keg were rapidly hauled on board the smack once more, and Bill was standing aft by the taffrail watching for a favorable moment at which to make another cast, when Bob exclaimed excitedly, "'Vast heaven, father! Tain't no use trying that dodge any more. We're too far to leeward. Cast off the line and take a turn with it round my waist. I'm going to try to swim it. I know I can do it, Dad, and it's the only way we, as we can do any good. The old man stared aghast at the lad for a moment. Then he glanced at the mad swirl of broken water astern, then back once more to Bob, who, in the meantime, was rapidly divesting himself of his clothing. God bless you, boy, for the thought, he at length ejaculated. God bless you, but it ain't possible. Even if the water was warm, the breaking seas would smother you. But bitter cold as it is, you wouldn't swim a dozen yards. No, no, Bob, my lad. Put on your duds again. We must try summit else. But Bob had by this time disencumbered himself of everything save a woolen undershirt and drawers, and now instead of doing his adopted father's bidding, he rapidly cast off the line from the keg, and making a bowline in the end, passed it over one shoulder and underneath the other arm. The next instant he had poised himself lightly upon the taffrail of the wildly tossing smack, and a mighty breaker sweeping by, with comparatively smooth water behind it, without a moment's hesitation thence plunged head foremost into the icy sea. The broken water leaped and tossed wildly, as if in exultation over the spot where the brave lad had disappeared, 
while all hands, both those on board the smack and the people on the wreck, waited breathlessly for his reappearance on the surface. An endless time it seemed to all, and but for the rapid passage of the thin light line out over the smack's taffrail, indicating that Bob was swimming swiftly under water, old Bill Maskell would have dreaded some dreadful mishap to his protege. But at last a small round dark object appeared in bold relief in the midst of a sheet of foam, which gleamed dazzling white in the clear cold light of the moon. It was Bob's head. There he is, was the exultant exclamation of every one of the smack's crew, and then they sent forth upon the wings of the gale a ringing cheer, in which those upon the wreck faintly joined. Now, boys, exclaimed old Bill, clear away this here line behind me, some of yer, and look out another nice light handy one to bend on to it in case we wants it. The old man himself stood on the taffrail, paying out the line and attentively watching every heave of the plunging smack, so that Bob might not be checked in the smallest degree in his perilous passage, nor, on the other hand, be hampered by having a superabundance of line paid out behind him for the tide to act upon and drag him away to leeward. The distance from the smack to the wreck was but short, a mere hundred feet or so, but with the heavy surf to contend against and the line sagging and swaying in the sea behind him, it taxed Bob's energies to their utmost limit to make any progress at all. Indeed, it appeared to him that instead of progressing, he was, like the keg, drifting helplessly to leeward with the tide. The cold water, too, chilled him to the very marrow and seemed to completely paralyze his energies, while the relentless surf foamed over his head almost without intermission, so that he had the utmost difficulty in getting his breath. Nevertheless, he fought gallantly on until, after what seemed to be an eternity of frightful exertion, he reached the side of the wreck, and grasped the rope which its occupants flung to him. He was too completely exhausted, however, to mount the side at that moment, and while he clung to the rope, regaining his breath and his strength, a mighty roller came sweeping down upon the sands, burying the smack for the moment as it rushed past her, and then surging forward with upreared threatening crest toward the wreck. There was a warning cry from those on board the wreck, as they saw this terrible wall of water rushing down upon them and each seized with desperate grip whatever came nearest to hand, clinging thereto with the tenacity of despair. Bob heard the cry, saw the danger, and had just time to struggle clear of the wreck and pass under her stern when the breaker burst upon them. Blinded, stunned, and breathless, he felt himself whirled helplessly hither and thither, while a load like that of a mountain seemed to rest upon him and press him down. At last he emerged again, considerably to leeward of the wreck, but with the rope, which they had thrown him still in his hands. As he gasped for breath and shook the salt water out of his eyes, something swayed against him beneath the surface, something which he knew instantly must be a human body. In a second he had it in his grasp and, dragging it above water, found it to be the body of a child, apparently about two years old. At the same moment a powerful strain came upon the line which he held in his hand, and he had only time to take, by a rapid movement, two or three turns of it round his arm, when those on the wreck began to haul him on board. In less time than it takes to tell it, he was dragged inboard and lay panting and exhausted upon the steeply inclined deck of the wreck, with a curious crowd of haggard-eyed anxious men and women gathered round him. A man dressed in a fine white linen shirt and blue serge trousers, he was the master of the ship and had given his remaining garments to shield the poor shivering frightened children, was in the act of kneeling down by Bob's side, apparently intending to question him, when a piercing shriek was heard, and a woman darted forward with the cry, My child, my child, and seized the body, which Bob had brought on board and still held in his arms. This incident created a diversion, 
and Bob speedily recovering the use of his faculties, and rapidly explaining the intentions of those on board the smack, a strong hawser was soon stretched from the seamew to the wreck, a boatswain's chair slung there too, and the transport of the shipwrecked crew and passengers at once commenced. The journey, though short, was fraught with the utmost peril. For it being impossible to keep the hawser strain taut, the poor unfortunate wretches had to be dragged through rather than over the surf, and when all was ready the women, who were of course to go first, found their courage fail them. In vain were they remonstrated with. In vain were they reminded that every second as it flew bore mayhap a human life into eternity with it. The sight of the wild surf into which the hawser momentarily plunged completely unnerved them. And they one and all declared that, rather than face the terrible risk, they would die where they were. At last Bob, who knew as well as, if not better than, anyone on board the importance of celerity, whispered a word or two in the captain's ear. The latter nodded approvingly, and Bob at once got into the chair, some of the ship's crew rapidly but securely lashing him there, in obedience to the captain's order. When all was ready, the skipper, approaching the terrified group of women, took one of their children tenderly in his arms, and before the unhappy mother could realize what was about to take place, handed it to Bob. The signal was instantly given to those on board the smack, who hauled swiftly upon the hauling line. Bob went swaying off the gunwale with his precious charge and circled safely in his arms, and in another moment was buried in a mountain of broken water which rushed foaming past, only to reappear instantly afterwards, however, and in the very brief space of time he and his charge had safely reached the smack. The little one was handed over to the rough but tender-hearted fisherman, but Bob, seeing that he could be useful there, at once returned to the wreck. There was now no further difficulty with the women. The mother whose child had already made the adventurous passage was frantic to rejoin her baby, and eagerly placed herself in the chair as soon as Bob vacated it. She, too, accomplished the journey in safety, and then the others, taking courage once more from her example, quietly took their turn, some carrying their children with them, while others preferred to confide their darlings to Bob or to one of the seamen for the dreadful passage through the wintry sea. The women once safe, the men made short work of it, and in a little over two hours, twenty-five souls, the survivors of a company of passengers and crew numbering in all forty-two, were safely transferred to the seamew, which, slipping her cable, at once bore away with her precious freight for Brightlingsea. End of chapter 1